The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since McDonald, the Second Circuit has sort of restricted that analysis a little. But it still has an analysis that says McDonald is satisfied if up front, even though a precise official act isn't contemplated, there is an understanding that the official is committing to take action on some specific matters as opportunities arise. I think that's the line from the Second Circuit cases that the government's going to be leaning heavily on in the Menendez indictment. I'm Quinta Dressick, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 31st, 2023. It's been a rough few months for Senator Bob Menendez. The powerful New Jersey Democrat has pleaded not guilty to federal charges related to an alleged bribery scheme under which, according to prosecutors, Menendez carried out favors for the government of Egypt. But while the allegations set out in the indictment sound pretty unsavory, recent decisions by the Supreme Court, in particular the 2016 case McDonnell v. United States, make prosecuting such corruption cases significantly more difficult. Lawfare recently published an article about the potential impact of McDonnell on the Menendez case by Daniel Richman, the Paul J. Kellner Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. So for today's episode, I sat down with Dan to discuss McDonnell, the charges against Menendez, and of course, the striking photographs of gold bars allegedly given to the senator that federal prosecutors included in the indictment. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 31st. Breaking down the Menendez indictment with Dan Richman. I want to start by setting the stage a little uh, about just what we're talking about in terms of the allegations in this indictment. What is uh, Senator Menendez, who I should say, I'm, I'm a New Jersey resident, uh, so my, my former senator, uh, what is he charged with? He's charged with a rather broad conspiracy that at its heart involves him and his wife committing to do things for the government of Egypt among other entities in exchange for things of value, money, gold bars, no-show jobs or low-show jobs, and a variety of other benefits. And you mentioned the the gold bars. As you wrote in your lawfare piece, the uh, the pictures that are included in the indictment are are pretty striking. 
And I, you you speculate whether uh, more federal indictments should include pictures. I mean, this I'm I'm kind of curious what you think about why prosecutors might have included that photo. What's great about the gold bars is that a they make fantastic copy. I, I really am starting to campaign now for more pictures and federal indictments, particularly if they can be anything like this. The irony, of course, is that you know. It's not illegal to give gold bars, to buy gold bars. The fact that gold bars are involved here doesn't excuse the government from putting on serious proof with respect to the quid pro quo that we'll be discussing. Um, The law can get a little complex here. But there's something about gold bars that just puts it in a different league. And I can't, for the life of me, even say precisely why. I've, when I was a kid, I really wanted a gold bar. I couldn't afford a gold bar. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that a kid would want. Why does a senator want one? It's announcing that you really want an easily transferable store of value. Maybe there's something in that. Or maybe it's just, as I said at the end of the piece, a quirky gift. Yeah, and and prosecutors also uh, include pictures of uh, jackets labeled with Menendez's name on them that had uh, allegedly quite a significant amount of cash stored in them, which I think also brings the the story home. So this is not the first time that Senator Menendez has been charged in a federal case. It's not even the first time that he has faced uh, one of the specific charges here for a conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. Um, So just to rewind the tape a little bit, um, could you give us kind of an overview of Senator Menendez's past legal troubles and how they sort of set the stage for what we're talking about here? I don't have all the details of the past charges before me, but essentially he was charged with intervening with the State Department in various ways for the benefit of somebody who was sharing him with gifts and things of value. And at the heart of the charges in that prior indictment were, as you say, precisely the kinds of charges here, as well as precisely the kind of theory we see here. Essentially, it was to give benefits do official acts for things of value. Right before that charge, the trial in that case, um, McDonald, the Supreme Court case we'll be discussing, came down. So that sort of operated as a bit of, cast a bit of a shadow on that case. But, you know, if if you're going to come down and ask me, Knowing all the law we know now, could that case have been properly charged and properly pursued to a conclusion by the government? I think the answer is yes. And yet the Justice Department chose not to proceed there. After the jury hung, the judge threw out a few counts, left a few other counts, and the government pulled back. So let's let's talk about McDonnell. What is that case and why is it so important here? So if you'll bear with me, we'll have to back up a little bit because the story of how the Supreme Court put itself in the odd position it has takes a bit of telling. So 
Originally, back in the ancient days of the 80s and the 90s, um, or, or even the 70s, lower courts were, pursuing, were allowing prosecutors, and obviously they were prodded by prosecutors, to pursue various bribery theories using some tried and true federal statutes in new ways. And in particular, what you saw prosecutors doing back in the 70s and 80s is charging honest services fraud, that somehow a public official had breached his duty to the public by receiving bribes or perhaps doing other things in violation of his duty to the public. So that was sort of a mail fraud theory. Also, at the same time, was an extortion theory, extortion under color of official right. The Supreme Court decided could support a similar bribe theory. Now, in both of those theories, which the court really, along with lower courts, kind of made up as it went along. There has been some congressional activity here, and in particular when the Supreme Court rejected the efforts of the lower courts back in the the 80s to use honest services as a basis for a bribery prosecution. Supreme Court rejected that and Congress intervened. But where we are now is there can be bribery charges as honest services fraud, and bribery charges can also be pursued under an extortion theory. And in both cases, as in 201, the federal bribery count, the Supreme Court has decided that the key is there needs to be a quid pro quo. There has to be a very clear agreement on the part of the official, or at least clear knowledge on the part of the official, that the money is being given to her in expectation of something specific. Now, Precisely what does a quid pro quo entail? Because, you know, if you're not careful, money can be given to officials in exchange for all sorts of silly things. You know, if a public official has a, a official announcement every year of the 12, my 12 favorite constituents, and there's an official proclamation to that effect. And somebody gives him a very large campaign contribution that the official knows is being given to him in clear hopes and expectations that the giver will end up on that magic roll. That's yeah, kind of crappy. Um, I think we'd prefer that's not the way citizens got recognition. But the idea of deriving a federal felony from that, even though it it is a quid pro quo in some formal sense, is something that particularly the Supreme Court has shrunk from. So what exactly should a quid pro quo entail? This is the issue that it really looked at in the context of McDonald, which involved the governor of Virginia charged with receiving all sorts of um, goodies from somebody hoping to do business with the state and the governor doing certain things in return. What the Supreme Court wanted 
to do in that case, and to some extent it did, was to ensure that somebody, a donor, who gives money to an official, only an expectation of a meeting or a phone call to be made should not provide the basis in of itself for a federal criminal charge. What the court really was concerned about, and they made it quite clear in that opinion, was that, gosh, you know, part and parcel of America is campaign donors having interactions with the officials that they donate to and asking for, in that context, constituent services of the sort that perhaps even the official gives to people who don't give him money. What the court was afraid of, it tells us, is that mere constituent servicing of that sort should not easily provide the basis for federal felony prosecution. So what it did in that case is essentially grab language from the federal bribery statute, 18 U.S.C. 201, drag and drop it into the doctrine about honest services fraud and under color of official right extortion, and say that you can't have, the only quid pro quos that are going to count is essentially where an official takes money knowing that it's being given to him to do an official act. And an official act isn't just anything. It's, it's something quite formal. It's a decision or it's an action. It's something far different from my, my silly example of putting somebody's name on the honor roll. We're looking for not just an official action of some formal sense, but an official action on some very clear, clearly defined matter, controversy, issue that is very bounded and isn't something that is vague and could entail easy liability for money being given without any clear understanding. So that's what the Supreme Court did in McDonald's. And we are, we being those reading the decisions and lower courts have been trying for some time to figure out how exactly McDonald interacts with the real world. The real world where conversations, particularly of the corrupt sort, don't exactly map the doctrinal demands that the court seems to require in McDonald and some of its other cases. So there's an argument that McDonald kind of represents a uh, part of a series of decisions by the Supreme Court that uh, whatever the court's intent have the effect of making it far more difficult to prosecute what seems on its face to be political corruption. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that that trend and if you think that's an, an accurate characterization of the force of these decisions. The really short answer is... I'm not sure of what the effect of McDonald and these other cases are. If you read the cases, if you read McDonald, if you read Kelly, the Bridgegate case, if you read certain of the court's other decisions in recent years, 
they will read like a very clear effort on the court's part to constrain federal prosecutors in public corruption cases. Now, is that the actual effect of what the court's doing? That's a bit hard to say. Certainly, what you don't want to do is look at the fact, which really is the case, that many convictions got reversed in the wake of McDonald and Kelly and some of the other cases. Um, The reversals were generally because the trial court in those previous cases obviously hadn't read a Supreme Court decision that had yet to be decided and gave instructions to the jury that were not consistent with the rules the court developed in subs- when it subsequently made rulings. So defendants who had appeals pending after the Supreme Court made its decisions really got the benefit of the constraining efforts the court was making. But it's if the real the real question though is not whether district judges got things wrong when they didn't know a future Supreme Court case. It's whether prosecutors going forward are really going to be impaired in their ability to bring charges where, at least in their opinion, serious corrupt activity has occurred. And that's a harder question to answer for for a couple reasons. For one thing, even in a case like McDonald, on one hand, the Supreme Court makes what sounds like a a quite limiting move to say that the only official acts that count or that should have been on the focus of the instructions in the trial court were ones about decisions or actions on a question, matter, suit, cause, or et cetera, really formal things, making it very clear that taking money to make a mere phone call won't count as an official act on the part of that official who took the money. Then they go on, though, and they say, well, that's true, but if the government charges and can prove that the official who's being charged took the money in expectation that he was supposed to be not himself making an official decision, but pressuring another official or advising another official to make such a decision, well, that might count. So in other words, even as the court of McDonald was coming up with a very limited, limiting understanding of 201 and of, by extension, Hobbs Act and mail fraud, it sort of provided this other way of proceeding. And this is particularly true in the case of someone like Menendez, who both in the previous case where he was charged and in this case is alleged to not necessarily have himself done anything very formal, but has pushed other people or is alleged to have pushed other people, actors or officials in in executive departments to do things. So in other words, McDonald gives to prosecutors even as it takes from prosecutors. And if the question is precisely what did the court mean by 
providing prosecutors with this way of proceeding that focused on giving advice and persuading? The answer is we're not really sure. We're going to have to work this out as we go along. So that's a really convoluted way of saying that even in McDonald itself, with the statutes addressed in McDonald, we can't be quite sure about how deep a cut the Supreme Court really made in the kinds of cases that prosecutors might want to proceed with. I'll also say that it's hard to fully, particularly with respect to state and local officials, to figure out sort of how seriously McDonald and the other cases impaired federal prosecutors, because the Supreme Court has never really except in a drive-by sense in in Kelly, given any consideration to 18 U.S.A. 666, the federal program bribery statute, which, at least according to lower courts, is remarkably capacious and not in any way limited by McDonald. So if you want the two-sentence bottom line to your very straightforward question, we're really not sure how far McDonald went, in part because it contains seeds for circumventing what appeared to be its limited ruling, and because it didn't fully address all the available corruption statutes that prosecutors could be using. I will say, since you're mentioning Bridgegate, um, I'm I'm very proud that the state of New Jersey is really doing its part for uh, the development of, of federal law around uh, issues of of political corruption. New Jersey has been representing. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I recall speaking to a friend who, at one point, was um, a, a U.S. attorney in in New Jersey. His diagnosis of New Jersey is that it has too much government. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think he means there's so many levels of government that that overlap, but I'm not sure that's the right diagnosis. It's something special about New Jersey. And I think you should comment it more than, and I shouldn't because I'll get in trouble and you're a resident. (laughs) Yeah, I I will note, um, and I'm curious if you had any thoughts on this, that of course this case is being prosecuted out of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York rather than the District of New Jersey. I wondered whether that might have something to do with the fact that there are allegations in the indictment about Menendez trying to uh, influence who was selected as the U.S. Attorney for New Jersey. And I believe that U.S. Attorney is actually in office now, um, that perhaps it sort of politically made more sense for SDNY to get involved. But I did think that that was kind of a a funny element, given the role of the uh, New York-New Jersey rivalry (laughs) in uh, the the relevant politics. It does. I mean, to be fair, I mean, giving full credit to New Jersey, when Saul Wachler, the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals, was charged... Mike Chertoff, who was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, came over and was in charge of that case. So let it not be said that that New York is only a taker when it comes to corruption cases. It's really nice that that there can be arrangements between the districts. But but more seriously, I think it's so hard to to figure out how cases like this play out in front of juries. But it, it will be interesting that the Menendez case, if it goes to trial, will, unlike the previous case, 
involved jurors who never had an opportunity to vote for him. And that might make a difference too. A difference in in which direction, do you think? That is such a good question. One that, again, you're better able to comment on than me, because the more I talk to residents of, of, of the Garden State about Senator Menendez, the more complex the views are. Um, obviously, he keeps getting elected, but just as obviously, you'll hear things that, at least in the people I speak to, suggest a, a not absolute allegiance to his cause and his integrity. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. I will say I've seen uh, reporting recently that his uh, approval rating has plummeted to a whopping 8%. Uh, so we'll we'll see what that means for his political future. But uh, j- to make sure that this podcast doesn't just become uh, talking about New Jersey, I do want to go back to McDonald and ask, you know, what it looks like if we sort of read McDonald alongside the Menendez indictment. And as you have set out, there are a lot of different moving pieces here. So I think it might help to kind of break things down piece by piece. So just just to start with the question of official acts. If we look at the conduct that's described in the Menendez indictment, do you think that rises to the level of an official act under McDonnell? Or would you imagine that the prosecution is going to have to tighten up its arguments a little here to make that case? Yeah. And let me start by saying, at least in, in my opinion, the fact that we have to read the allegations of in the indictment and say, could this really be a federal crime, or at least under the charges, under the statutes designated, really shows the bankruptcy of the Supreme Court's efforts in this area. Because, again, he's presumed innocent. The charges have yet to be proved. But I don't think any regular citizen could read this, the allegations in the indictment and say, if proved, that's okay. Um, not just that's okay, or if proved, that shouldn't be a serious federal crime. Because the, the government really has gone into considerable detail to lay out a scheme that, that at its heart is fundamentally corrupt in dictionary terms. And the only question is, is it fundamentally corrupt Um, whether it can be proved, and is it fundamentally corrupt in the estimation of the Supreme Court's limited limitations on the statute? So to answer your questions, is there an official act within the meaning of McDonald alleged? The answer is, yeah, I think so. 
I think the clearest official acts that are alleged involve official acts not of Menendez himself, but essentially uh, the indictment is charging that as part of these the conspiracies that are charged, he pressured others to do things. He pressured the an agriculture official to not stand in the way of the halal monopoly that Menendez and his co-conspirators had concocted essentially as a way to create a to create money to pay Menendez. I mean Menendez is not alleged to have come up with the idea, but he's certainly alleged to have been a key beneficiary of the creation of this monopoly. And it sounds like the, the charges as part of the conspiracy, he really committed himself to ensuring that the USDA didn't oppose this um, halal monopoly. I think that could be an official act, particularly in the context of the McDonald analysis that allows pressuring others to provide the requisite official act. There are other official acts alleged, particularly uh, with respect to efforts by Menendez to put pressure on a New Jersey prosecutor to favorably resolve the prosecution of of a a co-conspirator's business associate. And again, pressuring others seems to be at the heart of what Menendez does. And it's something that the dicta in McDonald really allows to satisfy the McDonald requirement. One of the things that I think is worth watching, though, is that McDonald could be read as saying that the only corrupt agreements that could satisfy the quid pro quos they have in mind are one where the participants to the deal really have an upfront understanding of precisely what official acts and on what things the public official will be doing. You know, there's language in McDonald that really makes you go back to the basic bribery scenario that you can envision with stick figures where the payor says, I will give you X if you do the following things. And the official says, I will take the money knowing you intend me to do precisely those things. So that's one thing you, one way McDonald could be right. And it's a pretty demanding reading. And what we're going to be seeing in this case is the interaction of the defendant's reading of McDonald that way with the analysis that the Second Circuit has in recent years come up with that sort of expands the range of arrangements that could be captured under a McDonald analysis. Even before McDonald, the Second Circuit had this idea that there doesn't have to be real clarity with respect to precisely what official act a corrupt official is going to do in exchange for money, as long as there's a clear understanding that he's going to be doing things for the payer as opportunities arise. Since McDonald, the Second Circuit has sort of 
clarified, or not to say clarified, um, restricted that analysis a little. But it still has an analysis that says McDonald is satisfied if up front, even though a precise official act isn't contemplated, there is an understanding that the official is committing to take action on some specific matters as opportunities arise. I think that's the line from the Second Circuit cases that the government's going to be leaning heavily on in the Menendez indictment. So, for instance, at the heart of the Menendez indictment, or one of their key allegations, is that Egyptian officials, that essentially Menendez is going to, has promised to use his power and authority to facilitate sales and foreign military financing to the Egyptian government. In other words, it's not exactly clear what he's going to do or who he's going to talk to up front to accomplish this. But the agreement charged is one that has him in exchange for for things of value, committing to, to be there for the Egyptian government and do all sorts of things in order to facilitate their getting military aid and, and arms. That's the kind of allegation that at least defendant is going to argue is, is, is too broad to satisfy McDonald. And the government will, will be responding, well, we're relying on the Second Circuit understanding of McDonald that will allow us to proceed in this way. And obviously, should this case ever reach the Supreme Court, maybe they'll think otherwise. But, but until and unless it ever reaches the Supreme Court, I think the Second Circuit's analysis will, will stand on that. So one of the aspects about this indictment that I think made it most interesting to us at Lawfare and what makes the allegations particularly troubling is that throughout the period that's described here, or for a significant portion of it, Menendez is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's not just any senator. He's a senator who is leading a powerful committee whose work speaks directly to exactly the same kind of foreign policy issues that his alleged relationship with uh, figures representing the Egyptian government uh, speaks to as well. Um, And the conduct at issue is directly related to sort of his core congressional responsibilities. There are some instances in the indictment that are are described where uh, at one point the government alleges, I believe, that he drafted, sort of ghost wrote a letter on behalf of the Egyptian government that was then uh, allegedly circulated among other senators and and so on. I'm curious if, if you think that, you know, that particular role as the chair of SFRC should play into our understanding of how the government is conceiving of official acts here. You know, if, if he were just some backbench senator, uh, would that case be harder for the government to make? Yeah. Well, so the first pass of the analysis is that to the extent that the government is relying for official acts, not on official acts of Menendez himself, but on official acts of those he called, whether at the agriculture department or elsewhere. His status, his political throw weight, really becomes very important to how one thinks through the level of pressure he was putting on somebody. 
if some lowly congressman calls the agriculture department and tries to get something done, I'm sure they'll record her calls. But whether anything will come of it or whether anyone could expect anything to come of it is obviously an open issue. I think the thing about Menendez and something he clearly would took advantage of is he was somebody of massive substance. He had some he was someone with clout whose calls to people who were not his subordinates were still not just taken but heeded. And I think that's going to be a critical part of the analysis. What's interesting in a in a larger sense is, you know, over and above this, you know, the government will have to come up with official acts analysis that satisfied um, McDonald. And as I suggested, I, I think they'll be able to, particularly on this pressuring others kind of theory. But the fact that we have to really, and the government has to really look closely at precisely who he was influencing and in which way seems to at least me to miss the bigger picture that what's charged is the government of Egypt is essentially is is according to these allegations had the head of a senate committee in its pocket that way of phrasing it at least as McDonald is currently understood by many courts, is not good enough. You need to get into far more details about precisely what was expected and what whose official acts were involved. And that's when I what makes me say we have come to a very strange place. If if having a a figure like Menendez in in your pocket because you've given him and his wife massive amounts of money and gold bars, etc., isn't good enough to be the end of the analysis. And it isn't. It might be the end of the analysis with respect to the foreign agent allegations that are also been brought in the superseding indictment, but it is not in of itself the end of the analysis on the bribery charges. Are there other instances uh, post-McDonnell of these questions being raised in the foreign policy context? Um, because I think that's, we, we may kind of be getting into the uh, the overlap of the honest services and uh, FARA charges here. But that's one of the things that struck me as really interesting about this is, you know, it's much harder just, you know, in a, in a, dictionary sense, like you say, to describe as part of the normal, you know, to and fro of politics, this kind of engagement with someone who is interacting with the Egyptian government rather than someone who is, you know, uh, a constituent or, you know, a political consultant or something like that, because there is this connection to a foreign power. Not to say that, you know, that necessarily undercuts the the role of McDonald completely, but it, it strikes me that the Supreme Court's reasoning there just seems a lot shakier if the concern is, you know, we we don't want to lead to a situation where people, uh, where politicians feel unable to engage in, you know, the the typical work of politicking. What do you think of that? Am I am I being overly squeamish here, or is that kind of a reflection of of exactly what you're describing in terms of just how bizarre the current state of the law is? I think there's no question that I mean I, I'm really 
the last person one should turn to, to, to read the minds of the Supreme Court. But at least my reading of the decisions suggests that they're not thinking about cases like this. In terms of why they've limited the statutes, they're thinking about trying to draw a sharp line between politics as usual that often involves interactions between regular donors who are usually U.S. citizens and political figures. Um, once you move into the foreign, foreign policy sphere, as, as, as this case is and as, as your question pushes us to, yeah, it really does seem that we, we might want to draw the lines really differently between normal interaction and prohibited corrupt interaction. Now, perhaps the Supreme Court's answer, were it presented with that problem phrased that way, would be, well, you got Farah. You have tools in the foreign po- specific to the foreign policy area that will help the government police interactions between government officials and foreign powers. And in fact, you could say the broad language of FARA excuses the government from getting into the precise kinds of official act issues that McDonald saddles the prosecution with in normal domestic cases. Essentially, all you need to do is, is show status, is to show commitment on the part of the government official to serve the interests of a foreign power, um, one in which money transfers and other sorts of things are obviously important evidence, but not critical elements of the offense. So I suspect the Supreme Court would say, you know, you got tools in that area, given that most of the corruption cases are coming up involving um, citizen interactions with officials, that's where our constraining efforts are appropriately exercised. That's really interesting. So so let's talk about the FARA aspect. FARA is a complicated beast, uh, and I, I don't want to get too deep into the statute here, but it is worth noting so that when this case was initially announced, the indictment that was unveiled did not include a FARA charge. I will say I certainly was scratching my head as to why the government hadn't charged FARA or at least uh, 18 U.S.C. Section uh, 951, which is a related statute that has to do with uh, acting as an agent of a foreign government. And then, of course, we got a superseding indictment (laughs) that did, in fact, unveil that charge. Um, So I'm curious for your sense of how the FARA charge sort of interacts with the other charges as part of the story that the prosecution is telling here. I was similarly intrigued by the absence of of any charges in the initial indictment that focus specifically on straightforward commitment to the interests of the Egyptian government. And my my first thought is, isn't this a clever way to try to avoid getting into governmental communications? Um, the focus can be less on what the Egyptian officials were relaying back to their government and much more on who was doing what in the domestic context. Obviously, the Southern District has 
move forward and put itself squarely in a domain where those communications are critically important. Um, the bringing of the Farah charges takes on some obligations um, with respect to proving up specific relationships um, between Menendez and the Egyptian government, but it's also not just a obligation, it's an invitation. By charging the Farah statutory violation, the government really opens the way, and I'm sure it will take advantage of it should there be a trial, to prove up in considerable detail the level and um, nature of the interactions that Menendez had with the people charged in the conspiracy and with the interactions those people had with specific Egyptian officials. That's completely open by the charge here. I expect the government will take advantage of that. And even though once we do the McDonald math, the precise quid pro quos and official acts that will provide the basis for a conviction to be upheld if the jury so finds might not come precisely with from the sit-down that Menendez had with Egyptian officials. But that proof will be critical at trial on the Farrow charges, and I think the jury will find it massively interesting. That is very interesting. So just just to return to something you you said uh, just now, when you said it, it sort of allows the government to get around having to address, you know, conversations that might have happened within the Egyptian government or between the Egyptian government and Menendez. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think it, if I'm understanding you correctly, touches on something that uh, I've also been wondering about, which has to do with the apparent absence of classified information um, in in the indictment. Um, as far as I know, having read through the indictment a, a couple times, it refers to material that Menendez pa- allegedly passed along that was not classified. I certainly wondered whether, you know, the the government simply doesn't want to deal with the potential complications of having to put that on the table during a potential trial. We're already seeing now how in the Mar-a-Lago case, the issues that that raises in terms of how you deal with that in court are kind of a mess. Um, And so it might be cleaner to to simply avoid that. Was that what you had in mind? Or were there other complications that, that that raises that you think the government might be trying to avoid here? It is what I have in mind. I mean, I wasn't sure I was right when I looked at the initial indictment and thought they really could cut out classified information and cut out a lot of the interactions within the Egyptian government and between the Egyptian government and its various cutouts um, charged in the indictment. Um, that may have been as as neat as I thought it could be, but at least it offered to me at least, the, prom- the, the possibility that the Southern District could disentangle the, this case from classified information. And, and since I think there's a, a lawfare rule that all conversations of any sort need to come back to 702. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that is an ironclad rule. And so that, that's a FISA section 702 for listeners who aren't quite familiar. Correct. You know, we look to the Egyptian government to all kinds of of important things they could do to advance our foreign policy interests, and perhaps we can help them, but they're not one of the five eyes, and I assume that there are 
efforts made to within our intelligence community to to monitor communications of of Egyptian officials. How's that going to interact with this case? And I have no idea. Perhaps it could be kept on a a separate track. Perhaps the prosecutors in this case really took pains, and it's it's possible that they did, to really um, wall themselves off from that kind of intelligence collection. Because to the extent the prosecutors and the agents in this case really were not relying in any way on on the ICE intelligence community and were separating themselves out from intelligence collection tools used by the IC. I think they could plausibly say that the prosecution team for purposes of Brady and Discovery does not include those intelligence agencies or at least those parts of the bureau that are involved in intelligence as well. Have they been structuring their case to allow themselves to keep that collection out? Perhaps. But if they haven't, this is going to get messy. Yeah, I, th- I have to say, I feel like that's the overall conclusion of everything that we've talked about here, that uh, barring uh, a plea deal, which could, of course, happen this may well be a very, very messy case indeed. I mean, are you anticipating that this might, you know, end up being quite drawn out if Senator Menendez decides that he he does indeed want to go to trial? Yes. If he decides he wants to fight the case, I, I do imagine it will be drawn out. It will be drawn out in part because, as we just discussed, there might be this classified information aspect to it. But even putting that to the side, there might well be some serious pretrial litigation as to whether the government's theory can stand up. And, you know, I'll note that generally in federal criminal cases, there isn't a lot of weight given to the pretrial efforts of a defendant to get an indictment thrown out because federal discovery rules are are pretty miserly in terms of giving a lot of information about certain aspects of the government's case over to defendants. So when a defendant files a motion seeking to throw out an indictment, the response is generally, well, you know, we'll show you what we got. At trial, our allegations are sufficient to stand up on their face, and we intend to prove them. And if you want to pursue any serious legal challenge to the validity of our charging theories, you can do that later. In some corruption cases, though, and particularly I'm thinking of a recent case in the Southern District involving former Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. The case was different in in certain important respects, but it was a corruption indictment. And he sought to have the indictment dismissed pre-trial for failure to adequately plead in satisfaction of Supreme Court requirements in cases like um, not just McDonald, but in in, in that case, some other um, extortion under color of official right cases. And he succeeded. 
Um, the government is pursuing an appeal in that case. They may well be successful, but it's far too soon to say they may well not be successful. But at any rate, that's a reminder that the Supreme Court has so complicated this field that there is, in many cases, promising avenues for defendants to seek pretrial relief challenging the government's theories, and courts may well take them seriously, and that will, of course, prolong the pretrial period. Any other questions you'd like me to set up for you? Anything we haven't gotten to? No, I think this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed our conversation. As I said, I I would really want this to be seen as part of my campaign for more pictures in indictments. (laughs) It Um, really does add something, doesn't it? It adds something. And I think it's a challenge that prosecutors are well able to rise to. If you can't find some, some adequate picture to show something about the criminality charged, maybe it's just not that bad. No, I take that back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 end on that note. More more pictures and indictments, please, and thank you. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.